With me on the line is Dr. Bernard Golden, who is the author of a book which explores that human emotion which can be so complex and which can lead us into so much trouble, anger. Anger is something which we wish we could avoid altogether. We don't enjoy feeling it, experiencing it. We don't like being the target of it. And uh, it's also an emotion which, uh, because we often uh, wish it weren't there, we often don't talk about it or explore it or, or come to understand it very well. This book, written by Bernard Golden, uh, is a very beneficial step in the direction of understanding anger. It's called Healthy Anger, How to Help Children and Teens Manage Their Anger. And uh, Dr. Bernard Golden teaches uh, in the Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago and uh, is a therapist in private practice as well. Uh, Dr. Golden, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. I want to uh, begin by... Uh, talking about the distinction that you draw uh, in, in the book, at least in the way you title it, that you are focusing here on helping children and teens manage their anger. And I think you really shed some very intriguing light on why anger is sort of a special problem for young people, not that it isn't for adults as well. But there are certain things about children and the way they view the world and themselves which which make them in, maybe in some ways particularly prone to anger and uh, and more deeply subject to uh, its control. Right. Children and uh, teens, when you think about the ability to deal with anger, you're thinking about uh, capacity to handle frustration, physical tension that comes from anger. Often children, especially children and then teens, really haven't learned skills regarding body awareness or the ability to relax. Many times if you say, just calm down, just relax, they may not even know what you're talking about. So they really need to learn specific skills that help them uh, rehearse relaxing so the times they are angry they could help calm themselves down. You tell a story in the foreword or preface of the book uh, about an experience that you had as a youngster with anger that was really, it sounds like, quite frightening for you. I really felt I had a terrible temper, to be honest, and there were a number of occasions that led me to that conclusion. And so in that incident where I was involved wrestling with a, with a, a neighbor boy and I was ready to hit him with a, with a rock, and I, at that moment I said, whoa, this is, this is out of control. Whether I was up, uh, very self-conscious or whatever, but it was helpful. I ended up going in the other direction, though, in the, in the following years, meaning that I ended up stuffing it. Uh, and, it and in many ways, either direction isn't that healthy. Right. But uh, my interest became uh, very apparent early on. We should talk a little bit about what we are, uh, what we are talking about with anger, and one of the things which you mentioned is that, that there is a whole range of intensity when we're talking about rage, whether it's annoyance or towering rage. But how would you define anger itself? I see it as a natural emotion, and too often we think of anger as violence or aggression. While those are at the far end of anger, meaning that anger can lead to, to that, uh, the reality is that we get angry every day with uh, much more mild uh, experiences, like you say, irritated, annoyed. I, I sometimes think we don't like the vocabulary to describe what we feel. Many times I'll ask a child or an adolescent I'm working with, were you angry this week? And I'll say no. Then I'll say, were you irritated or annoyed? Oh, sure. Many of us think of anger as you have to be physically aggressive or hostile, and uh, sometimes we lack the vocabulary. And the, the the point which you just made briefly, which I think is such a fascinating one, is that uh, it, it often is uh, grows out of our frustration 
with our expectations, the fact that we go through life with a whole series of expectations about what should come our way, what should be ours, uh, some of those expectations realistic and some of them unrealistic. Right. I feel that anger is really a re- valuable resource. If we stop and think, and I'm not just talking about at the moment of anger, but afterwards, anger can tell us so much more about ourselves, our expectations, our hopes, than it does about the other person or situation that leads to anger. I see anger very often as a, a reaction to or even a distraction from other feelings, like feeling hurt, I become angry. Feeling embarrassed, I then become angry. Feeling shame, similarly, will lead to anger. So yeah, you talk about how anger can be either a primary emotion or a secondary emotion. That's an interesting distinction to draw. And do you think that anger is sort of unique that way, or, or in particular anger is that kind of emotion that can exist in, in sort of those two streams? Uh, there's been debate whether it's actually labeled a primary or secondary. In fact, in the recent years I've called it more as a, uh, uh, associated with these other emotions. Uh, certainly as a knee-jerk reaction, we become angry. It's just as primary as joy or sadness. But it so often is a, a reaction or associated with other emotions that we may not become aware of. But for the person who is so uncomfortable with anger, in turn, they'll just experience the uh, embarrassment or hurt and not experience anger. Hmm. We're, we're actually drawing right at the moment from a a chapter in the book entitled Guiding Principles of Healthy Anger, in which you help us understand a bit more about where anger comes from. And one of the points that you draw, which is in, in some ways quite obvious and yet really very helpful, is when you say that the emotion of anger is distinct from the behavioral expressions of anger, that feeling angry towards your little brother is not the same thing as hitting your little brother. Why do you think that distinction is valuable to draw? Uh, several years ago, there was a book written about anger in America, and their, their view was that we become so aggressive because we don't discuss anger. Anger has a physical tension or physical component, and too often we don't stop and look at the other parts to it, the emotions or the expectations. And when we use the word anger, as I was saying earlier, that we tend to think that that's the physical expression of anger, is the aggression or violence and makes us uncomfortable just to talk about it. So if we could look at it as a natural emotion and become more comfortable talking about it and uh, with the children who experience it, it helps them feel comfortable with it. You talk uh, at one point about the, uh, the negative ramifications of, of anger, which of course is, is an ex- important thing to understand here in that anger can be a healthy thing and yet uh, unrestricted anger or uncontrolled anger of course can lead to uh, some some real serious problems. Uh, give us some sense of what those are. Uh, when it's controlled, the best use of anger is really helps promote intimacy. And by that I mean when we look at our anger and then stop and think, what are the other feelings behind it? Uh, direct communication to a person saying, I was hurt, I felt embarrassed, something you said made me feel uh, discounted, and then I became angry. That person gets to know you. You feel connected to the other person. In contrast, when we don't uh, say how we're feeling, and I'm meaning both messages, the anger as well as the feeling behind it, if that's not heard or listened to, we feel even less connected. In turn, we'll be more likely to strike out. A um, little, little example would be a woman in my, one of my workshops described her reaction to her child. He said, how come they're a terrorist? And she simply said, well, you know, there are lots of people in this world who are extremely hurt and feeling much pain, and sometimes what happens when we experience that if we take it out on other people, especially when we think they were involved. 
And she kind of captured it very clearly that sometimes we become more aggressive and we want, we want to hurt other people because we're feeling so much pain. You talk about how there are physical, emotional, uh, social, and intellectual reactions to anger. I mean, that, that, that anger affects us in all of those spheres. And the one that I found most intriguing of those four, the one that I had not really pondered before, is you talk about how anger can distract us from effectively performing certain cognitive activities like thinking, planning, concentrating, organizing, uh, expressing ourselves, effective communication, uh, genuine understanding. All of those are made much more difficult, if not impulsive, uh, impossible, if we are dealing with uh, anger. Right. At its more extreme uh, level, for example, I tell people the worst time to discuss uh, your, your conflict is during an actual conflict when you're that angry because your energies are channeled emotionally in terms of getting your point across, having say one more word or sentence to convince them of your view. Uh, so you're not really ready to take in anything. Uh, physically, when we are agitated physically, it, that competes with uh, thinking clearly and, and, again, with taking in information. I compare it to going through a, uh, an intersection where there's a, a bite that just turned yellow. Some of us push the pedal and race through it, and uh, clearly at those moments we're not using our best judgment, but we are, we're so focused on getting someplace. We're talking with Dr. Bernard Golden, uh, author of Healthy Anger, How to Help Children and Teens Manage Their Anger. Dr. Golden, if there's anything in this book which I found especially helpful, uh, I'm speaking as someone who happens not to have children, so I don't pretend to understand children especially well. I certainly don't from a parent's point of view. Uh, But you take us through something which was really especially fascinating to me, and I think would be to many people that read your book. When you try to explain the developmental factors that influence how children and teens express anger, what it is about being a child, which leads their anger to have sort of the mode of expression or intensity that that it does, Um, you say that one of the things that, that can affect that is the degree of dependency or autonomy that a child, a given child, has achieved. How does that right. affect anger? Uh, as a little child, they actually may think this, or, or even if it's not, they're not completely aware of it, they may feel, I'm, I'm angry, I'm annoyed, but I'm just a little guy, and I need my parents, and I better not say anything. So I won't show them or say that I'm angry. The next step might be that the child is so uncomfortable with being angry that says the same thing. You know, I'm a little guy and I'm, I'm, I'm dependent on them and they're going to get angry if I say I'm angry. So I won't show them. In fact, I'm not even angry. So there's a step of convincing oneself one isn't angry. Uh, another aspect of dealing with the child is they involve, that involves child logic and, and adults have it as well, but it's like the expectations I wanted to come back to that very briefly were, were unrealistic when we say I need to please everyone or I have to be perfect. It's those kinds of expectations that lead us to become more vulnerable, and children are more likely to have them. Hmm. You tell us that children uh, have fewer resources than adults do, uh, not in terms of material possessions so much as uh, they just don't have things like problem-solving skills uh, developed to any meaningful extent yet. And and so they are led to uh, live out their lives through their own what you call child logic. They, they lack the skills in terms of physically self-soothing, calming themselves, uh, the vocabulary. Unless parents really use words that describe emotions frequently, the children lack an ability to even identify and tease out some of the experiences they're having. And the problem skills is a big issue. Yeah. 
You also touch on the fact, and this maybe comes down to genetic predisposition, that there seems to be uh, a, a real different range in terms of a child's threshold for stimulation, how much that they can handle. And apparently that is something you think that is not particularly taught, that you're really born with that threshold. If you notice in the nursery, some children would uh, much more uh, easily react to a waving hand or a light turning on or off. So they're sometimes called thin-skinned, uh, much more vulnerable to stimulus. Others are much more calm. So I think there might be a predisposition that adds to uh, their experience and certainly what experience they have other, uh, additionally can conflict with that or, or go along with it. Right. Here's a quick example, a child who's overly stimulated Let's say the mom is someone who really likes to be mellow and calm. Well, right away there's a, there's a little mismatch that can cause some tension. You say that children uh, do not have much skill when it comes to what you call self-soothing. I love that term. And, uh, and, and I'd not also stop to really think about the fact that, uh, that we all need to know how to do self-soothing. And children, uh, by and large, probably are not particularly skilled at it. Right. One of the things that I emphasize is that managing anger is based on very specific skills that can be learned. And when I focus on self-soothing, I'm talking about body awareness, where you actually do exercises, and for the young children, it's mainly a game of helping them tighten and make one arm stiff and then tell them to make it like a, uh, a rag doll. Tighten and make the other arm stiff and make it soft and uh, loose like uh, gummy candy. And what it does is to teach the child what it means to tense an upper an arm and relax it. And then at the time they are angry, they have a, a memory for what that requires to relax. Hmm. We really get a sense of how complicated anger can be for, uh, for a child to deal with and for a parent to deal with just when you, you talk about all the different ways in which it is expressed. And uh, I lost track of <laughs> how, how many we're talking about, but it's, it's, it's over two dozen, I think, different right. ways, right. Um, verbally and physically and uh, with uh, withdrawal and uh, uh, scapegoating and suicidal self-denigration, de- uh, uh, self-sabotaging behavior. On and on it goes. And really, all of those spring out of anger? Uh, many of those behaviors, while they can originate from other issues, very often can be uh, uh, either anger is a, is a springboard for it or associated with it. Underachievement. Children who are depressed certainly are, are unable to channel their energies and focus their concentration. But also children and teens who are angry, that anger competes with their ability to concentrate. Uh, withdrawing is one social way of dealing with, uh, with anger. The sense of, if I'm angry, then leave me alone, everyone, and they withdraw. And Part of anger, especially for children and teens, is already not feeling connected with people. So that's one reaction. So while those, uh, a lot of behaviors are related to anger, some, some may not be, but very often we see anger in those, uh, precipitating those reactions. Right. I want to talk in just a moment about uh, the, the sort of essential practice which you, you suggest, the exercise by which one can look back at an event of anger uh, in your own life or in, in or from someone else, someone else's anger. But I wanted to talk with you first about this matter of expectations once again, because this is really intriguing to me. It seems to me that this would be uh, an even more preemptive way to help a child maybe not become so angry so often, is if one can uh, help a child come to grips with their own unrealistic expectations of life 
and uh, and if they can be a little less unrealistic, uh, then maybe there's going to be a lot less of that uh, sense of entitlement, which then leads to frustration every time your your entitlements don't come your way. Um, first of all, tell us about the unrealistic expectations that so many children have uh, going through life. So many of them are based on what I describe as child logic. It's, a child, it's the logic of a four-year-old, and again, I say we, we have it even as adults, that somehow we felt this expectation. One example would be I need to have everyone's love. Uh, I need to be perfect. Uh, if my best friend won't spend time with me, then uh, how could he be my best friend? Kind of all and none thinking. Uh, extreme thinking. So helping a child uh, talk through his expectations as well as the conclusions. You know, if my friend really liked me, he would have invited me along with with him. Uh, Well, yeah, he could still be your best friend, but maybe he wants another friend as well. So by talking through the expectations, they can help be more realistic. Similarly, when children talk about feeling hurt or angry, uh, rather than saying, well, we'll get over it or, you know, things will be better, Listen and find out what are the expectations that are going on. What are the conclusions the child may have made that leads them to be more vulnerable to the anger? You talk a parent or other concerned adult, I suppose, could, could be involved in this too, through, a, through an exercise in which you evoke a very familiar picture for people. That is of the VCR and uh, the play and rewind button to help relive uh, and anger event in a more careful fashion. Uh-huh. Uh, explain how you think this can work. Uh, I've used this uh, approach for a good number of years now, and what it does is having a child describe or picture an incident. Let's say they were involved in an uh, altercation with a, a neighbor, and they were then asked later on at a moment when they're calm to picture that incident as if, they were, as if it was on a videotape that they can put into a VCR and be able to forward and slow forward and also reverse and pause. And it's a way of having a child gain distance to observe and be a little more objective what was going on around them. And then in, in reverse, I, I suggest the child listen internally. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Uh, after the event happened, right before the event happened. So it's a way of slowing up and having the child step outside themselves in the sense of become more objective in their approach. In the same way, they can then be help in looking at alternative approaches that they could have taken. So it's a way, again, of slowing it up. And Most change of any kind is, is through observing ourselves from a little distance where we can step back and see what happens. One of the things you suggest along the way is that uh, a child may not be particularly comfortable looking at their own anger, and it might be an, an interesting uh, variant to have them look at anger elsewhere. All right, I think it's really important that parents realize I'm not saying, okay, if you've never talked to your anger with your child, go ahead, right tonight, start now. I really think, listen to the dosage, what's been the history about discussion or the comfort of discussing anger or hurt. And if the child isn't that comfortable, begin by discussing characters in a book, characters in a movie, or, or everyday current events. There are certainly examples of anger being demonstrated, or uh, even, even other people, uh, friends. So it's not experience that direct or intense. So it's helpful to think of dosage in terms of uh, how much uh, to approach it directly. It's interesting to me because if, if we ever have moments in our lives where it sort of seems like it would not be very easy to pick it apart in terms of, well, first I felt this and then I felt this and then I felt this, it's a moment of anger where it just sort of seems like life kind of turns into this red-hot blur. 
and um, so so I'm I'm very intrigued. Uh, not as skeptical as I sound, by the way, but but I find it very intriguing and surprising that that you would suggest that someone could step back, and particularly that a child could step back into one of those kind of moments of red hot anger, and actually be able to discern rather subtle shifts in feeling and emotion, which eventually led to that anger. I'm really not suggesting that take that approach at the time the child's anger or even within the next half hour. <laughs> that we sometimes think we have to address it immediately. What should be addressed immediately at that level of anger is, is mainly the physical reaction, helping a child calm down. Uh, later on, when the child is more aware, much more calm and, and able to talk about things, that would be a time to look back and analyze and look at things. I certainly don't mean to uh, try to get the child to concentrate at that moment. Like right. That. Yeah. I guess part of what I'm saying is I think as as I, most of us, when we look at a moment of anger, all we see is anger, just red hot anger, and and there's sort of a lovely simplicity to it, uh-huh. and uh, and 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 really what you're telling us, and very convincingly, I might add, is that those moments of anger, those events of anger, are actually much more complex than that, and that it is worthwhile for us to take a look at them, to not pretend that they didn't happen, but for us to examine them very carefully. To, to see those those uh, subtle shades, like you said, once the anger has subsided and we have the capacity to, to do this. Right. I see it as uh, not a single issue, but as it, anger is embedded in feelings and thoughts, and to just focus on the anger, you're right. It, it just uh, it misses the point, and it misses uh, really understanding what's going on. I would like to make mention of the fact that you, you devote an entire chapter to something uh, which is the same and yet not the same, and that is those cases when a child and their parents really require what you call special support, because we we really need to acknowledge the fact that there are all too many cases in which a child is simply out of control, right. and in which this anger is uh, presenting a, a a very real danger to themselves and others, and creating all kinds of misery in the home and school and so on. Uh, uh, at, at least briefly, give us some sense of the kind of special support that is out there and, and when a parent needs to realize that special support is, is necessary. I think the things to look for would be the intensity of the anger. Uh, is the child just yelling and screaming versus is he aggressive, uh, hitting his sibs, uh, hitting or teasing or tormenting animals, um, the, not only the intensity, but the uh, duration. So if he is hitting a sib, is it something that happens, oh, hardly ever, or is it an ongoing chronic issue that has lasted for several weeks and months? Uh, in terms of bizarreness, some children do very uh, aggressive things, like push a, a sib down the stairs, and that's really a real lack of empathy that, that is much more than just a, a, an impulsive maneuver. So intensity, duration, and also pervasiveness. Is a child just angry at one person, or do they seem angry uh, chronically in terms of at other friends, at neighbors, at uh, relatives? Those are the signs of uh, needing additional support. And also kinds of support that are available, certainly I'm thinking of counseling. Uh, sometimes it's helpful even to have them see a, a relative if you know that there's a relationship that allows for open communication. But counseling... Uh, therapy. Sometimes children may have uh, ADD in combination or other disorders in combination with problems with anger. So maybe they need to be assessed for ADD 
or some kind of there's a learning disability, which could even interfere with learning some skills dealing with anger management. You have not mentioned medication. Uh, are you not a fan of medication in these cases? When I think of children with some of these disorders like ADD or, or bipolar disorder, certainly they should be treated for those disorders, and medication is often the best choice of uh, treatment. Uh, anger itself, if, it doesn't, if it's not combined with those kinds of disorders, very rarely is treated with medication if it's not, uh, like I say, it overlaps with another, another disorder like uh, bipolar or, or ADD or sometimes explosive uh, anger disorders. Hmm. Sometimes they might use the seizure medication for some of those. In the conclusion to the book, you, you say this so well, I think. Uh, you, you talk about how your, your interest in anger probably springs out of your own childhood difficulty with anger. But you go on to say that um, dealing with this complex and challenging emotion has been uh, a lifelong process. So it does not end with the reading of even as good a book as this one. Uh, anger is a reality in all of our lives, um, probably to our dying day. It is a process, and uh, people don't like to hear that <laughs> because it is complex. And as long as we have uh, expectations, especially when they're unrealistic, we're certainly more vulnerable to anger. But even when they're realistic, we are disappointed. We are hurt. And our anger really is a signal that something needs attention. And so it's always going to be there. It's a matter of being able to manage it. <laughs> I love the quote on the very last page of the book. With, uh, Anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. Who said that? Uh, Aristotle. Very good. He was much more brief than I. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, this is a really fascinating and I think potentially very helpful book, Healthy Anger, How to Help Children and Teens Manage Their Anger. It is published by uh, Oxford University Press, written by uh, Dr. Bernard Golden. Uh, Dr. Golden, a real pleasure to speak with you. I thank you so much for your time for joining us today on The Morning Show. Thank you very much for having me.